What's up? This is Drex One, and this is another episode of the History of the Bay podcast sponsored by the good folks of Amoeba Music San Francisco. Today in the building, we got Skino in the house. We got DL behind the boards. We got Kingset and Rocky Vision behind the lens. And our guest is famed chess master, Brazilian jiu-jitsu master, <laughs> master of the mic, master of the pen, journalist, Bay Area OG, Adisa Banjoko. What's up, man? I'm so honored. I'm so hyped right now. For sure. Like, me too, you know bro. what I'm saying? Me Thank too. you for having me and, and respect to the whole crew and everything that you do. It's important and I appreciate you. Much bro. love. I'm glad you got to make it here because, uh, you know, we've known each other for a minute. We haven't had too many opportunities to sit down and really build, but we're getting True. there. But uh, I've definitely been aware of your contributions for a long time. Uh, and I know you got a lot to talk about. But just to get to the very start, where where exactly did you grow up and uh, what was your childhood like? So I was born in San Francisco at a hospital that don't exist anymore in 1970. And um, I really kind of grew up initially, like I'm talking about like baby, baby, San Francisco, Daly City, Pacifica, and then San Bruno. So the thing was, is that my father, his whole family was from the Mission District and my mother's whole family was from Lakeview and from Hunter's Point. So I was kind of lucky because I was technically a super suburban kid in terms of like hood safety. But because my family was in Lakeview, Hunters Point, whatever, I was there, I was seeing it and I was still kind of around it, but I always had the safety of being able to go back. So I visit my grandma's and then go back. So that's really like my life. And then um, as hip hop in 1982, my cousin was lifting weights at his house. He used to go to Westmore. So he was lifting weights, trying to be Apollo Creed. He still looked like Apollo Creed. It's kind of disgusting. But he was lifting, and he had a boombox, and he was playing something I had never heard before. I was like, what is that? He was like, that's a mixtape by Jesse Carr. See how I still remember it? Because it yeah. was that different. Yeah. And he was, I was like, <clears throat> I'm going to need a copy, like immediately. And I knew whatever that music was, I was going to be a part of it forever. What was on the mixtape was punk rock rap by the Cold Crush Brothers and a whole bunch of other stuff. And I just fell in love. It was right before my birthday. And my pops was like, what do you want for your birthday? I was like, whatever makes that. So what's crazy was my dad went and found out about how, turn like he was already into electronics. So he figured out how turntables and mixers worked. He knew. So he we set up turntables and mixers on my birthday. And my dad was like, burp, 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 burp. that's how it works. I was like, you can do this? That's cool. So like my dad opened the door. Yeah, because he knew he just knew enough about electronics. Yeah. And because our family was a big musical family, like my uncle, who went to Mission High School, threw Carlos Santana's first show. So like, I was always in it like that. You feel me? Yeah. So even though I'm technically... Where was Carlos Santana's first show? At Mission High School. At Mission High School? Yeah. My my wow. my uncle was the president of Mission High School. Was it the the band Santana or was it just Carlos? Carlos. It was Carlos. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. And so um, that was that was you know like the light the the fan kind of family that I that's, came that's, from. Uh, that's from the ground up, right there. Yeah. So I always kind of had a foot in. So I think it was that same year I bought the album Duck Rock by Malcolm McLaren and the world's famous Supreme Team. And for most people that know that is a very pioneering hip hop album in 1982 and 1983, there's only like three or four actual rap songs on it. The entire album is African beats with a few Latino beats, like one merengue beat. That's it. That's it. 
but my parents raised me to be very pro-black and very conscious of my blackness in any space, but especially white spaces. Like they knew they had me in the burbs, but again, back to hood safety, that's right. But when I'm out in my own neighborhood, nigger, you know what I'm saying? It's on. There's only a few black families. We got to live. We got to click up and like try to be safe and shit. And so, um, you know, racism was still a thing. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. So you're in that 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 West Bay Peninsula yeah, circuit down yeah, there. Yeah. And you know it definitely I mean? uh, is a little less diverse. It can real be, waspy, it can, real racist. Yeah. Man. Yeah. It can be a lot more segregated down there. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so a lot of the frustrations that I felt as an isolated black suburban, I was able to feel reconnected to my blackness, to the people from my generation through hip hop. Mm -hmm. And I was like, oh, word. And then like, especially when conscious hip hop started rolling out, it was even easier because I had read all these books. I was raised on this information. You know what I'm saying? So when you say conscious hip hop, you talking what? Poor I'm Righteous talking teachers. like PRT, Public Enemy, KRS-One, like X-Clan, you know what I'm saying? Um, and everything that was connected to that era. Gangstar, you know what I'm saying? How were you seeing hip hop develop in the Bay Area? And I'm especially curious to, because I, I got respect for the 650 mm. for, for those areas mm. you named in the mm. burbs. I know there's cats in San Bruno, San mm. Mateo. Mm. Uh, uh, how were you seeing the Bay Area hip hop culture form around that time? I mean, it was weird because in the burbs, it was non existent. Mm. And I, when I say non existent, I mean non existent. Um, so I had to go into San Francisco. I had to go like, like, I don't know. Do y'all, do y'all remember, like, there were early clubs and they were treacherous danger, bro. Palladium, the stone. Mm-hmm. This is before the earthquake. Palladium, the stone. They had a place I never went to called Base House Funk. I don't even remember where it was. I called one day just to see if I could perform and they said, yeah, but then I didn't fucking, I didn't know how to get there. So that was that. And then... A base house funk. They used to run ads for their for their events, and I knew it was San Francisco. So, so what happened is, I was a DJ in nineteen eighty six. I went to Oceana High School, which was in Pacifica. But the interesting thing about Pacifica is that it was an open enrollment school, which changed everything for what it meant to be a technically suburban high school. Because you could be from anywhere and go to Oceana. So we had Sunnydale cats, Hunters Point cats, Fillmore cats. I mean, like, it was, and it was a poor white trash high school at the time. Nobody will be honest about that shit. If you went to Oceana, someone was probably getting stabbed or beat up by stoners. Straight up. Real people know. Oceana, Terra Nova. It happened. But Oceana had all these blacks and Latinos there who technically people from the mission who who shouldn't have been there in theory. And what it did, because it was the 80s and cocaine was new, it created a very interesting ecosystem. I'll just say that. Yeah. So I'm going in and out of real crazy places only in pursuit of hip hop. I mean, I'm like a straight proto Urkel. I'm Urkel before Urkel. And I'm going to these spots in Hunters Point and Fillmore. They used to have, what I was chuckling about was the solar system. The solar system used to be a club in Hunters Point. And it was like, it was a death cauldron, dog. Like people would show up looking fresh. 
and the outside had like a solar system with planets and shit on there. And then people would go in and all the G's would wait outside. And so like people, oh, that's a nice chain, bro. Oh, that's a fresh sweater. That means when you come out that thing, you coming up off that thing. That's sweating. You know what I'm saying? And so like, but I would go always and it was like God made me invisible. No one ever messed with me. I never got threatened. Sometimes I would go somewhere and I would like preemptively tuck my chain. I was like, it's going to be dangerous. Right. And I would go in and nothing would ever happen to me because I I don't know if they didn't see me because I look like so much of a nerd. Or if they could see that I was there as a student, because I would go up to a DJ that didn't fucking know me and be like, "How, how do you do this? What records are those? Right. What? Okay, so you plug that there, and then I would go back. I talked to my pops, and I'd hook my shit up. You feel me? So like, that was. I mean, it was it was an amazing time, bro. I think people, every element uh, was on fire. Every element was on fire. People take that for granted now that you can you can access hip hop and hip hop culture damn near anywhere in the world. But you know, earlier you you really had to go to the hood. No, you had to go, and it was very specific things, right? Because hip hop was fragmented. There was the music. Yeah. There were the parties yeah. and there was the fashion, right. right? So like for instance, I would go to uh, Music Emporium on Ocean, right? Creative. Right, creative yeah, music, creative yeah. music, yeah, right? I'll go to creative music, right? And Joe had love for me. Like I remember one time I went there and he was like <laughs> I was such a kid, man. I don't know. It was like 86 and he was like, "Hey, um I'm having a writing contest about hip hop." Now, I don't know if he's telling the truth or if he was just doing this for me because he knew I was a nerd. And he was like, uh, whoever writes the best essay on hip hop, you know, they're going to get a bike. And That's I said, cool. I said, no shit. So I went home, wrote an essay about hip hop. And then I came back a few weeks later. He was like, you won. And I was like, no shit. And I got a bike. You know what I'm saying? And rest in peace, Joe, yeah, man. We yo, miss man, you, bro. Salute, man. Nothing Listen, else like creative when music. we talk about people who carried the entire culture from the beginning, it's so hard to explain what he did, bro. Yeah, like made a lot of things possible for yeah, the San man. Francisco area, man. Like, like, uh, so I'll go there, but then you had to go somewhere else for the hats, you had to go somewhere else for the shoes, you had to go right tease Wauzi, you had to go to Eastmont Mall for the jackets, like it was all like, and you had to know. And yeah. you would go in there. Like people, the the thing is, I remember I got this crazy dope jacket out of Eastmont and the whole thing wasn't what you could get in Eastmont. It was, could you get back to the car before niggas dragged your shit? And it was real. Yeah. yeah, So I remember I went, my parents gave me enough money to get this jacket that I said I wanted. And then I went with like two of my homies and we bought it. And I remember feeling like I'm trying to sneak out of the place with the jacket before niggas run up on me and take my shit. And then by the time we got in the car, like I felt like I did a bank heist. You know what I'm saying? Um, and there were shows to be done everywhere. Like we did shows. I was in this group. So wait, I'm going too fast. No, 86. Good. I'm walking around. And what happened is my boy, Jamie, cause I was just a nerd in my room practicing like maniacally on turntables and beatboxing. That was my thing. I was a beatboxer and I was, I was, I was a DJ. And so these dudes that were hella whack, I'm not even going to say y'all crew name was like playing one of their mixtapes. And my boy walked by. And he was like, what's that? And he was like, oh, that's that mixtape. And he was like, oh, my boy Jay will roast y'all. He was talking about me. And so I was walking and the main dude was like, what's up, nigga? I was like, huh? He was like, I heard you can DJ. I was like, huh, what's up? Like my whole demeanor changed, you feel me? And I was like, what's up? And he was like, we want a battle. And I was like, I had three people. Devastating. 
nigga. Devastating DJs. But we were nerds. Nobody knew we were savages. And I was like, what's up? We can battle. And he was like, we want to battle for equipment. And I didn't care about that. But then I knew I couldn't enforce the victory. Yeah. Right? Like, we'll crush y'all. But then y'all will still beat us up and take yeah, our shit. Yeah, that's the trick about you battles feel me? like that. So I was like, nah, nigga, I'm not going to battle you, blood. But like, whatever. I'm not afraid, but whatever. And I told him, I was like, man, these fools want to battle. Man, me and my crew was me, Mark Spurlock, and Ravi was the three of us. And we were savages. And like <clears throat> DJs, only DJs that really know this shit will remember when Dr. Dre put out Surgery, the record, the original Surgery, not the album version, the single, your skill as a DJ could be determined by how well you could do that scratch to the instrumental. His original solo scratch, Dr. Dre's, was the single hardest scratch solo of its time. It was the fucking standard. I'll destroy that fucking, like then I could do it because that's how maniacal we were. So I was like, man, I could tear shit up over surgery. What's up? Anyway, they didn't want to battle. But what happened is the dude who originally challenged me became cool with me. And he was actually in some dope shit. So he started taking me to like, Y'all, I mean, this is old school shit, like Big Mouth Burgers, Here's the Beef, shit like that over on 3rd Street. And he was like, you talk about all this hip-hop shit, I'm going to take you to where the street shit is at. So he was kind of like my mentor, you know what I'm saying? And then he became my DJ, and then he introduced me to another dude who was a DJ who lived on Revere Street. So we started doing stuff up there. Then I met this dude, AK Black, who was from Double Rock. At the time, he was called 12 Gauge. Um, now he's known as AK Black. Shout out to AK Black. And then, but AK Black was older than me. These were dudes, grown ass dudes. You know what I'm saying? So we started doing shows and it was just, it was really crazy, but it was really beautiful. I got lucky that I never got killed, robbed or, or gaffled in a really fucked up way. But I think that was just God looking out for the sincerity of my pursuit of the art. You know what I'm saying? So I got to see a lot of a lot of shit before it, it, you know, the whole thing really blew up, you know. And so it was a blessing, all that, of it. So that led you to to um, start rapping yourself in in your group, Freedom Troop One Eighty Seven. Yeah, Freedom Troop One Eighty Seven. So we were a short lived group. It was me, DJ Hilo, and Rob Ski. Rob Ski was like, he was like premier, bro. Like I remember me, Crazy Legs, and Cubert. And Apollo and Mike, we went, <laughs> we were going to L.A. The day of the L.A. riots, there was a battle in L.A. So if this shit was like, what was that, April 29th? It was like the 30th was a battle in L.A. Me, Legs, all these dudes, we hop in the car. And I remember we were, we were in, we were, we were in, in San Bruno at the Lucky's buying whatever we were going to buy before we jumped in the car. And Cuba was like, yo, so who's your DJ now? I said, Robski. He was like, ooh, he's good. Like, you don't hear Q say that about too many people. You feel me? So, like, we were a crew. We were hard as hell. We were super political. Troop stood for through revolution of our people. We were fucking fearless. We opened up with Gangstar and Organized in their prime. We opened up for uh, Onyx, Brand Nubian, again, in their prime. That shit was at the Stone. She was crazy. Stone was hella violent. Palladium, those shows happened before, before that. I was in a group called One Nation. And it was like me, Qbert. Well, no, Q wasn't in. Uh, DJ Disc was in. Um, shout out to Disc. Um, FM two O, mm-hmm. right? 
that's me and them. Yeah, I met yeah, them through yeah. my boy because he was still at, at Reardon. Wait, you were in FM Two O? No, uh, One Nation was like a okay, uh, I see. right, a big like an umbrella crew name. Yeah, FM Two O had Mixmaster Mike Apollo. Yeah, Kiebert, this was before. before Scratch yeah, yeah, yeah. Pickles. yeah, yeah, before Scratch Pickles. So it was like me. Shout out to my boy Nim. Yeah, Nim, Nim One. What's up, brother? Harrell, H Two O. You know what I'm saying? Uh, AK Black. Who else was in that? Freedom Troop. I think that was it. And so um, we were doing shows all the time, tearing it up. Like I said, the Palladium, real dangerous places. And nothing ever happened to us. We was good. People respected us because we had martial arts on stage. There was this dude we met named Sultan Udin, and he used to actually, for his time, he was one of the bodyguards for the Saudi family in L.A. when they would show up. He was hella dangerous with the Filipino stick fighting and stuff. So he started showing, we, we would do this stuff on stage. He would do capoeira on stage. And so, um, That's tight. like, and so like we used to tear stuff down, but then what happened is my boy, Hilo, man, rest in peace, dog. He was a G. He, um, <laughs> this is a funny story. Somebody robbed his mom, but imagine like the ski mask, right? And you run up and be like, give me your purse. And then she was like, Reggie? <laughs> it's not Reggie. Give me your damn purse, woman. <clears throat> and then like she got robbed. So then she was like, and like Hilo was hella big, bro. He was like, he was like KRS-One. Physically. So he said, man, somebody robbed my mom. I was like, damn, what you going to do, dog? Now, he was technically from San, San Mateo, but he was in like the brokest part of San Mateo. Like, seriously, like it was dangerous. So anyway, he saw this guy on the bus. Like, he's on the bus and he sees the guy walking down the street. Doom, doom, doom. He gets off. This is crazy. He goes to a... a uh, army surplus stores. I don't even know if they have them anymore. Yeah. And he walks in. He's like, can I buy a knife? And the guy's like, uh, yeah, we got a knife right there. How much is that? He's like, 10 bucks. Keep the change. Runs out. Right? So he gets caught. And they throw him in a clink. And he didn't have money for bail. So he had to sit. So he's got to sit. No one knows where he is. Hilo just disappeared. So me and Rob are like, we're like, we're like, we were covered in Spin Magazine. We were doing all these shows. Like everybody was like, oh, y'all niggas is fitting to be next. You know what I'm saying? And then um, Hilo disappeared. So I'm like, fuck, what am I going to do? Now, at that time, I had just stumbled into knowing hieroglyphics. I stumbled into knowing Boots and all these other people. So I'm like, all right, we're going to take Hilo off the tracks, replace them with guests so that A plus was on. Uh, 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 Pep Love was on Dell was on Boots was on Like crazy This album was crazy Then he beats the rap Because the dude he stabbed Didn't snitch He didn't snitch There was a code Anyway They was like Can you identify the guy Who stabbed you with that knife He was like Nope Case dismissed So now he's out That's two years bro We just finished getting you Off the album I was like I'm done I'm done. So that was that. That was the the album never came out. It never even got finished. I was recording that album at the house of Jason Slater, rest in peace, who was actually ended up being a part of Third Eye Blind. But he was a crazy hip hop. He had crazy hip hop knowledge, and he was an actual crazy producer. He ended up. I think the last album that he produced was um, Queensrÿche. But like his hip hop knowledge was top tier, man. Wow. But he just died like last year. But it was horrible, like two years ago. So is is that? That's a crazy story. I know how that. That's how it goes with groups sometimes. Um, but did that? Can I curse on your show? Because yeah, I'm doing it a lot, yeah, bro. Yeah, 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 yeah. 
Um, Y'all gonna have a lot of beeps? <laughs> no. Nah, yes. This is 2023, man. Um, Word. What... How did that, did that like help you open the door into journalism? Nah, I was writing first. You were writing so first. The first thing I did was um, I interviewed Easy e in 1987 from a high school newspaper. Uh, what happened was I was a struggling binge alcoholic at Oceana, low self-esteem, not really knowing what the fuck I wanted to do outside of hip hop. And my, uh, my counselor, Mr. King... He had this funny ass voice. I can't even in, in, like I, no one can mock Mr. King's voice. Rest in peace, bro. I, I love you. But he had a funny voice, and so he calls me into his office, and he's like, "You're failing everything, but English." So I'm putting you on the journalism squad. I was like, "I want to write." He's like, "Too bad. You're on. It's the only A you have. Everything else is D's and F's." I was like, "Okay, but listen, I don't want to write. All we had was football, wrestling, and swimming, and hoops, and um." I didn't care about any of those. And he was like, well, what do you want to write about? I was like, I want to write about hip hop. He was like, great, just write, get the fuck out of my office. And I was like, okay, bye. So that weekend, I went to the record store. There was another record store up the street from um, Music Emporium. I don't remember what it was called. But that day, I walked with my dad and hip hop was a small, like the hip hop section in record stores used to be as wide as this table. It was like four singles wide, bro. That was it. And so I was like, what y'all got? He was like, we got this. It was My Uzi Weighs a Ton by Public Enemy. And I only had read about them. I didn't know what they were. You know, I was like that. I was like, what else you got? He's like, I got this ruthless boys in the hood. So he puts it on and my dad's at the far end of the thing. I said, play it. And he's like, cruising down the street in my six foe. And my dad, like, he hears that shit. He's like, no. Like, he's at the end of the thing. He's like, no. And I look at him and I'm like, I know, right? I said, put that shit in the bag, dog. Put that shit in the bag. Because he's down there. He don't know what record it is. So I had Public Enemy and Easy e the same day. Like, imagine what that does to, like, yeah, a 17-year-old yeah. brain that don't know shit, right? Right. So I go home. I pick up the phone. It's like Ruthless Records, you know, 310. I was like, doo, doo, doo. Ruthless. I was like, hello, is Easy Ian? It was like, nope. I said, all right, well, listen, I think he's got a hit on his hands. I'd like to interview him. Here's my number. Please have him call me. Okay? I'm calling from, this is my, the words I actually used. I'm from a big time newspaper in the Bay. That's how you know I'm a kid. <laughs> big time newspaper. Have him call me. I go play hoops. Come back. A boy named Eric left a message for you. You lying. Here's the number. It's some old L.A. shit. I said, oh, stop playing. Hello? Uh, yes, it's Eric Ryden. Is him. What's up, man? Hey, uh, love the single. Love to interview. Uh, are you up for it? He was like, sure. I was like, cool. I'll call you back. My mom used to be a legal secretary, so she had all this phone recording shit. So I'm like, cool. So I call him back. Man, I'm just talking straight bullshit to this dude on the phone. He's happy to be interviewed. So we do the interview. I type it up and the album was called, the, the title of the piece was called Easy Does It Very Well. That's what it was called. Easy Does It Very Well. It's the first article on Easy and NWA. Because at the time, NWA didn't even say what they were called. This is the first article ever in publication. Probably. I've never seen one earlier than mine. Right. 
But here's what happened. We become cool. Yeah, all right, cool. Da, da, da. Now, we haven't even seen each other because video is, is a thing, but they had not put out a video yet. So then he comes to the Bay to do a show for a Martin Luther King Jr. celebration. I want you to think about the irony of that. It's NWA and Eazy-E at a roller rink in San Leandro that too was a death cauldron. So he calls me. He's like, hey, man, I'm in town. You want to come to the show? I'm like, word. I was a big fan of Ice Cube since CIA. People don't remember Ice Cube and CIA. But he had a song called My Posse that I, I really loved. And he had another track called Illegal that I really loved. So I was trying to meet Cube. But Cube's dad didn't believe that NWA was going to be a thing. So he made Cube stay in school. And that dude was at ASU studying like graphic design or something. So he's like, everybody but Cube. I was like, all right, cool. So I go to the show. It was me, JT, and my boy, my seat. And so I had never really been, like, I had been to the Fresh Fest. You know, I went to the Fresh Fest. I went to all the things that happened at the Coliseum pretty much. Um, but this roller rink thing was new. And he said, I'm going to put you on a list. And I'm like, okay. So I don't really know what that means. He's like, go to the front. Man, the line for this show was around the block. I had my little starter on, you know what I'm saying? The New York starter. Everybody was trying to have a starter. So I go up and he said, go to the front of the line. So I went to the front of the line. The niggas was hot. Get out the front of the line, no, no. I was like, uh, I'm on the list uh, plus two, I think he said. And they're like, and they're like, that nigga ain't on the list. I'm like, and I, if you ain't on there, we gonna take his starter, nigga. I'm like, fuck. And then they're like, uh, me. That's me, that's me. That's my two. I was like, they let me in, bitches. I'm gone. So I go in. I'm walking around the back. He's walking around the back, but we don't even know what each other look like. So eventually he's like, Jay? And I'm like, yeah. He's like, what's up, man? And so <laughs> I, I got this picture of me, Easy, Dre, Ren, and the Arabian Prince is in the shot. Like, it's that early in the NWA journey, right? The Arabian Prince is in the shot. They go, they do the show, shit was lit. But I interview him, and that was my beginning of hip-hop journalism. That's a hell of a fucking beginning, man. I God know, damn. bro. I had, to, I had to, you know what I'm saying? I was like, I guess I'm doing this forever, right? Wow. So, that I mean, I'm 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 a hip hop nerd too, right? And I used to love looking at the back of albums, oh. and I would pay attention to to um, locations. Yeah, who they shouted out, yeah, like everything mattered, out, man. That. Like all the thank yous, right? You pay attention to that shit. Yeah. So, and it ma it makes me think of like before social media and all that. Like you had to still find ways to be accessible for people to contact totally. you. And yeah. even someone as as monumental as Easy e when he was still starting out on his grind, he he was able to be, oh, some guy wants to interview me? Cool, I'm on it. Yeah. A lot of people don't have that kind of hustle today or that they kind don't. of that yeah, sense. Yeah. I have to remind myself of that to go try wild shit today, right? And the other side of that too is like, if you're trying to be a journalist, Fuck it, start big. Just start, exactly, right? Just try. Just you know try, right? So so then I dropped it. When it came out, still so many people, even at my school, didn't know who NWA was or Easy was. Only a few, they're like, you really talk to him? I'd be like, I really talk to that fool, blood. Like, we cool. So what happens is because I write this article, right before it dropped, he calls me one day and he's like, hey, what's up, man? Now you got to understand, we were having regular conversations for months. And... 
<laughs> After about the first month, right before the piece drop, he calls me. He's like, hey, what's up, man? I'm like, what's up? He's like, you know, my manager, Jerry, wanted me to ask you a question. I was like, shoot. He's like, who do you write for? Was it the Chronicle or the Examiner? <laughs> and I'm like, Okay. Okay. So look, man, I'm I'm 17. I I'm writing for the Oceana Foghorn, man. I just uh real fan and you know. I hope you don't hate me. You know? And he said, Who cares, man? No one writes about us. Run that shit. What do you need? He was, he didn't care at all. And then we just stayed homies. Like, I thought he was going to be like, nigga, I'm coming up there with 30 niggas. He thought it was hilarious. I thought it was hilarious. And we just kept going, bro. We just kept going. And so then, like, he called me a few months later and he's like, hey, he goes, don't, don't you live near San Carlos? I was like, yeah. He was like, I got a new girl group. They're called JJ Fad. You want to go to the show? I'm like, yeah, um, I'm totally down for this. Like, what's up? They're playing at the Circle Star Theater. Like, let me tell you how old I am, and let me tell you about how unique this place was. Circle Star is so old. As a child, I saw the Jackson 5. I'm going to say that one more time. I saw the Jackson 5 at the Circle Star. Damn. I saw Cool in the Gang at their apex at the Circle Star. It was a star in the center of the stage, but the band played in the circle and it rotated. So no matter where you were, at some point, you would be at the front of the stage. That was the way the circle star worked. So, man, I get there, blood. He got me and AK in there. We got backstage. I'm not used to any of this. I'm a child. Imagine if you were a kid and all of a sudden Eminem was like, come through, bring your friends. Like, this is what it was like. Yeah. Man, I go back there. It's EPMD, the two live crew. Hammer's whole original crew was like in the row ahead of us. They was like 30 niggas deep. And so I had the backstage. I go back and I see Brother Marquise from the two live crew. This is before they brought strippers. This is right before they started bringing strippers. And so he's like, hey, what's up, man? He's just happy to meet. I'm happy to meet. We chilling. And he's like, let's walk around. Come with me. This fool was stealing from all the dressing rooms if nobody was in it. And he's like taking shit. It might be food. It might be a watch. And around the third thing that he takes, I'm like, fuck, man, like you're not a real rat. You're just a guy walking with him. If they start figuring this shit out, you're going to get fucked up and he's going to just go on stage. I was like, bro, I got to chill, bro. I don't know what's going on. He was like, OK, man. I, you know what I'm saying? What is that? Right. And I was like, all right, I'm out. So. This was my introduction into hip hop, but I'm really hanging backstage with EPMD. I'm really hanging with these dudes. And for a 17-year-old kid, there was no better entry for me than that, man. Like, well, it was crazy, bro. So were you, were you able to parlay that on early into other publications? No, because hip hop, no one cared about it. It was mm -hmm. weird, you know what I'm saying? Like, I remember when Ice-T came out with Cop Killer, KGO Radio, which is now dead, had a thing about talking about hip-hop and police and lyrics. And I called and I said, I'm a hip-hop journalist and da-da-da-da-da. And I made a laser-sharp argument. And I got off the phone. I hung up. They were like, oh, thanks for your call. But then, like, literally, I used to have this shit on tape. She was like, a hip-hop journalist, that's uh, new. But anyway, like, you know, it didn't exist as a craft. 
You know what I mean? So there wasn't really anywhere to write. And then in 1989, Chuck D does his first lecture at SF State. A.K. Black, who was a student there, said, yo, Chuck D's coming and I got us tickets to hang after the talk. So he said, after the talk, don't leave. Like people come up to you, he goes, don't leave. So after everybody leaves out of the auditorium, Chuck D comes back out. I'm 19, bro. I'm chilling. Still cool with Chuck. What's up, dog? Still cool with Chuck. But that was the day that I met him. And like, he gave me his phone number. We chilling. And so while I was there, there was a guy from The Source. One of the original founders of The Source was named James Bernard. He was the first West Coast editor for The Source. And he was here in San Francisco. He lived on Page Street. Hmm. And so he was like my writing mentor. Okay. First, as a crew, he put Freedom Troop 187 in the source when Malcolm X was on the cover. Mm. If you look in that, it has the uh, what's the what's the unsigned hype? Mm -hmm. I think I'm in the first unsigned hype. Mm, The first. I think I'm in the first unsigned hype. I'm sure it's one of the top five, the first five. I'm sure of it, but I think it's the first one. Wow. And it's about one nation. Right. And like, you know, there's at that time, my rap name was MC Most Ill. Anyway, uh, so it's me, it's AK, it's 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 uh, DJ Disc, it's FM Tool. We all get shouted out in that thing. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but then everything kind of falls apart. And that was around the time that I met Pac. And then. Because I know FM Tool has some major label interest. They did, but like I think everything that we were doing at that time was hard to understand regionally. Yeah. And I think that the industry was too new. So when yeah. FM2O was doing their thing, they were a mixture of like Slayer and Public Enemy. But at that time, you only knew Slayer or Public Enemy. You didn't think of them as a, you know what I mean? Yeah. So this is when Dell was still trying to break through mm-hmm. uh, Souls of Mission. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah, man. Like, yeah. you know, so, so the reason that I met. Dell was that somehow people forget that Hyro was bigger than Souls, you know, and Cash. Like it was a really big crew. So originally I met like Dre the Emperor and this other dude, I think his name was Mixoplix. And then they introduced me to Dell and and A Plus. And me and Plus clicked immediately. Me and Dell clicked immediately. And me and Tajay clicked immediately. And then because of my writing skills, I ended up writing like the bio for casual for Jive and some other stuff. Because by this time, now I'm writing for The Source because of because of James Bernard. So he got me into The Source well, as a writer. What was your first article in The Source? And this was your first publication that you were really... Yeah, as yeah. a hip-hop artist. I'm not proud of that first story. You don't want to share uh, who it was about? I like to stop. And then... <laughs> We're going to skip that first story. Oh, shit. And I'm going to go <laughs> dig that up. I got to No one help him. No, no one help him. Can you tell me Nobody. offline? Nobody. Yes. Okay. All right. So, so then I started being able to do stuff for them. And wait, then, wait, wait, wait. Sorry. I just got to ask this. It's okay. Are you the first hip-hop journalist of the Bay Area? No. I believe the first hip-hop journalists in the Bay Area were Davey D mm. and Billy Jam. Billy motherfucking Jam. Dog. I love both of y'all. You know what yeah, it is. shout out to the homies. You fucking know. Shout okay? out to the OGs. I'm 90% sure. I know Dave... Preceded me, I'm pretty sure, 99.9% sure Billy Jam was before me. 
but I'm one of those emerging ones. I consider myself a pioneer hip hop journalist because at those times, if you wrote about it, you were a pioneer. Well, I'm not and, saving and, it for myself. And Billy Jam if you was wrote in the source times, too. Yeah, exactly. So we and, were some. And Davey D, yeah, you had Davey national D, stuff exactly. going on. And then, um, I mean, we talked about Dave Paul earlier. Offline. Yeah, Dave Paul, right? Lachlan, right? 4080. Um, you know, I wrote for rap pages. I wrote the first article on Dell for the source. And then later I wrote the first article on, on hieroglyphics for rap pages. And then that issue was when Snoop was on the cover. Okay. So like that piece was fucking crazy. This uh, era of hip hop journalism would make a good documentary oh because it's God. also tied into all that amazing music that was going on mm -hmm. where you had regional artists, you had nation nationwide artists yep. making their stops in the Bay yep. because it was an important region. So they had to touch they down had to come in the with Bay. whoever was out there locally yeah, doing, uh, doing the writing and stuff like that. And also just the names. If people don't understand the significance of names like Davey D, Billy bro, Jam, bro. you know, Dave Paul, bro. Uh, um, 4080 magazine. Yeah, I wrote for the bomb. I wrote for 4080. I wrote for pretty. If ha if you wrote about hip hop, I was I was trying to like work with you. you Having those types of people with those types of passion and talent to make a journalism scene bubble, yeah, is kind of what we don't really have. I feel like there are a few emerging voices. Yeah, it's not but the I'm same. I'm talking in terms of people really picking up a pen, really really writing. Yeah, bro. and really making this a creative pursuit. I would really like to encourage more people to get into Please. that type of journalism. Yeah, you got to document hip hop in your area. I feel like it's a wide open field right now for, for, sure. for someone to come out and really start writing. Yeah, about sure. what's going on out here. I mean, shout out to OG Pen. I think uh, you know. Are you familiar with OG Pen from KQED? Lightly. Okay. I be I need to meet because I, I believe he's definitely uh, Eric uh, Arnold picking up that. Yeah, yeah. Eric Arnold's yeah. another one. You yep, know what I'm saying? Yep. Like. Like, Eric Arnold was a savage, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, it was deep, right? So, so around 1989, around the time that I meet Tupac, which was weird because we had a crew called One Nation. He had a crew called One Nation. Yeah, that was going to be his coast-to-coast -coast yeah. album before now, he died. Our original vibe was that we were down to battle anybody because we had DJ Disc, bro. He was a fucking slaughterhouse on turns, boy. Come through and get fucked up. Like, I've seen him destroy people who thought they were raw, like... In half a second. And, you know, we 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 did a lot of stuff. But what happened was there was a girl who lived down the street from me was from Santa Rosa. And what would happen is she would throw these house parties when her parents would dip. Hey, it'd be lit. And Ray Love would show up with DJ Dizzy from One Nation. And we became cool. So he was like, oh, you remind me of my boy Pop. Because I was just silly and talking shit all the time. So then he was like, we should hook up. Then when Digital Underground drops their record, Sex Packets Party, first of all, the greatest single record release party in the Bay ever was Sex Packets. Mm. Anybody who was there, you know was nothing compared to it. Was that on, on Broadway? It was at DV8, I think. Is that in the city? Yeah. On Broadway? It was on DV8, 8th and Howard? Oh, it's Something like okay. that. Okay. So, I was a dude who could never keep a job because I didn't give a fuck. I just wanted to do what I wanted to do. So, I worked at Tower Records, and my manager was like, look, I know Digital Underground's record release party is on Saturday. Your ass is working Saturday. Don't let me find your ass at that thing. I was like, are you crazy? I love this job. Get up in the morning. It would be crazy if I didn't have my voice today, but unfortunately, <laughs> I can't make it. Click. Went to the party. Soon as I got there, Ray was at the front. He opens the door. I was like, what's up, Nick? I'm like, what's up? I came in. He's like, bro, this is the dude I was telling you about. 
He was like, what's up, man? My name's Tupac. I'm like, what's up, bro? So we start talking and someone's like, hey, let's take a picture. And he puts his arm around me. 10 seconds, I knew him. That, that picture, if you look up Adisa, A-D-I-S-A and Tupac, you'll see it. So we became cool instantly because Ray had vouched for both of us and we became cool. In fact, we were supposed to record a song together, but um, this dude who will remain nameless acted like a whore and fucked off my ability to do that song. It was called Static. But then the song was made without me uh, and it still came out later, but like it never really dropped like the way it was supposed to. But me and Pac were working on a song together and we went to multiple shows together. We kicked it a lot. Um, I interviewed him once when he got beat up by the police for the commemorator, which was the this paper. It was a Black Panther newspaper called The Commemorator. And it was put out in part by Bobby McCall, who was Money B's dad. Um, and Money B's dad managed Freedom Troop 187 for a little bit. So I started getting a lot of my writing chops in The Commemorator. Um, and then when Tupac got beat up, I interviewed him for that. You're talking about by the police? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, um, but it didn't go well because it was like two days after he got beat up and he was still angry. The interview was not that good. And then um, right after that was the Oakland, mm, the big fire, the firestorm. Yeah. That was on that same day that the fi- Oakland firestorm happened, Public Enemy and Anthrax played at the Henry J. So I went and when I knew that the Oakland was on fire, I drove early because I was like, oh, you may not be able to cross the bridge in a little bit. So I drove over there, got in early. And when I walk into the room, Chuck D is sleeping on a table like this against the wall. Like if this table was against the wall, he's asleep. And then Harry Allen is asleep on another table like this. There's no S1Ws. I walk in, I was like, everybody's slipping, blood. Like somebody could just come in here and hit him with the silencer. Like what's going on with security? But somehow like Chuck's spidey sense was on. He like opened his eyes and he just looked at me. He was like, What's up, Bishop? And he just put his head back down. And then Harry Allen looked at me. He was like, and he just nodded. And he was like, what's going on? I was like, man, the police beat the fuck out of Tupac blood, man. Fuck this shit, blood. We got to do some shit, bro. Like, what's up? And he was like, when you see Tupac, tell him I'm um, going to do a song for him tonight. I was like, word? He was like, yeah. So I went back in the crowd and then I see Tupac, but he's like 40 feet away from me. And the crowd's in the building. And I'm like, so people forget that Tupac used to, uh, when, when Digital Underground first toured with Public Enemy, someone stole some of Public Enemy's gear. Tupac figured out who it was and put a bat to him. When Tupac beat him with the bat, he was a roadie for Digital Underground. And then Chuck and Flav said, you're going to be on the rest of the tour on our bus the rest of the tour and that's when he told him my mom was a panther so I don't like people you know what I'm saying and him and Chuck were hella tight so he became a mentor to Pac so I'm seeing Pac in the spot he's got eye jammies and hella Vaseline on his face because he was really beaten horribly by the police uh, and he won a huge judgment actually yeah. um, you know what I'm saying shout out to John Burris yeah right and so <laughs> um, I'm looking at him and I'm like Chuck D said he's gonna do a song for you and he's like I'm like, Chuck D's gonna do a song for you, for you. And he's like, I can't fucking hear you, man. And I'm like, okay. So I'm just waiting, because I'm like, what a surprise this is gonna be. So this place is fucking rocking. I don't know if it was because Oakland was on fire or, you know what I'm saying? Whatever, but the energy was just crazy. I think that show was sold out. And then 
he's like, I still don't remember what the song was. And I don't think Chuck remembers either. But he was like, Oakland Police did my boy Tupac wrong. And, you know, Pac's a star. People know him in Oakland, especially. But it's like, so he's like, so now, now I'm going to say a song just to say it, but I don't remember. Let's say they did Shut Him Down, right? Fucking mayhem, dog. I mean, like, everyone was jumping. It was like, it was like all souls and bodies were aligned. It was out of control. And I look, because now I'm about to be like, I told you kind of a thing, right? And I look at him and he's over there and we're both kind of like stuck in this body wave of people. Bro, he was crying, bro. He was crying because he was in so much physical pain. He was so embarrassed. It was crazy, bro. It was crazy. That's powerful. I uh, I don't know if I ever uh, knew about that relationship and connection between Chuck D and Tupac. Yeah, bro, it was fucking real. Yeah, man. Um, so wow, that's that's a crazy start to your your journalism beginnings. I wanted to ask you too because, you know, I know you've done you've continued to do some music over the years, mm. but I feel like you transitioned more. Um, you know, your main thing would have been the journalism. Yeah, correct? for sure. That's not even a question. You know what I'm saying? What what point? What point? When is a good point to put down the mic and pivot into doing something else? Oh shit, that's a hard question, right? Because I know that's something a lot of people deal with. Yeah, man. I think that um, artists love expressing themselves, and from that perspective, it's hard to tell a person who loves to express themselves. Put that shit down, dog. You know what I'm saying? It's a wrap. And anything that they do, they could be a painter. They could be, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, it does, Yeah, it doesn't matter. I think, though, the, th- the thing that makes hip-hop weird is it is duly and truly youth culture, right? Like, we are all in it, but it is driven by the young. And so what this means is, for the best and the worst reasons, we all have a short short shelf life in the game. But I'm just specifically talking about MCs. So I think that when you feel that you're not reaching who you intend to reach, you should start looking in new directions. I think that's very well said. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I would encourage a lot of you rappers to start looking in new directions. Please start looking in new directions, man. Put that shit um, no, down, for dog. real talk though, because I see a lot of people, especially now where it's more easy to become a rapper in terms of accessibility. Mm-hmm. I see a lot of people, they love hip hop. They grew up with hip hop. They yeah. love writing rhymes. They love recording, all that stuff. But they just, you, you know, they might not be in it to win it. They might not got it, their circumstances. Mm-hmm. But like I said, we need journalists. We need label executives. We need this managers. Real, we right? need marketing people. We need attorneys. We need DJs. We need radio hosts. We need curators. Especially need, in the Bay yeah, Area. Yeah, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's so real, right? And so it's like... So you I, can still do what you love. Yeah. You can still be part of yeah, it. Yeah, like, you know. like start a studio and let the kids come to record at your spot. Boom. Like, you know what I'm saying? If you know how to use the beat machines or if you understand PR or whatever, yeah. help the other youngsters get on. You know what I'm saying? I think that's... Um, and I still respect any cat that ever picked up a come pen. Come on, you like, can't I, can, I, I got to respect you as a rapper. You know, you. I heard your earlier music. It's dope. Thank you. You know, you just, you pivoted and you found yeah. something that actually uh, brought you on... So many different pathways. Yeah, like way more. You know what I mean? And the thing was, was that 
there was a time when I was writing and rapping at the same time. And so it was very weird because I might be in a dressing room with my crew and then gang stars down the hall. But I know Guru like so he comes. Hey, what's up, bro? I'm like chilling. We open it for y'all blood. What's up? Yeah, you know, and it's cool. Uh, shout out to uh, Guru and Premier. You know, I did some really early shows with them. I also did some some early interviews with Guru that were um, amazing. You know, he had an affinity for the Fillmore. A lot of people don't know that. Like, yeah, there's those he was old really photos of, of Guru and uh, Primo. Out, yeah, out he there. loved the Fillmore for all the record stores. He yeah. loved the Fillmore Groove for Merchant. the toughness, Groove Merchant. Yeah, because it rem- and a lot of the uh, Zebra Records. I yeah, believe. but there was there was some other ones on Hate Street that are blanking in my mind right now. But there were two used record stores where people used to go dig, and I used to be there all the time. And and he loved Marcus Books right back right. in the day. And so what it was is there was another group. Um, that people, man, look, I don't even know what happened to y'all, but I know you're out there, but stop playing. They were called Squadron Black. These motherfuckers were the hardest political rappers I ever heard. Squadron Black. They shut down any stage they hit. One dude from Army Projects, one dude was from the Fillmore, and I think the producer called a Great Gazoo or something like that. I think he was from Excelsior. Wow. They were a problem for the planet. I promise you. And when Premier would come, him and Gazoo would go record hunting and everything. And I know they opened up for Gangstar a few times. But, you know, man, one dude fell in love. Another dude gets his girl pregnant. And, you know, everything falls apart. But I mean, like, you know, Gangstar loved the Fillmore. And the Fillmore loved Gangstar. When, When Gangstar performed, like, at the DNA... Half the niggas in the crew was from Fillmore, nigga. Like, it was crazy. Like, you had to be careful. You feel me? That's sick. And, um, yeah, it was a beautiful time, bro. What What do you think were some of the most groundbreaking stories from the Bay Area in those times that you were a part of? Being around all the invisible scratch pickles before they blew. So let's talk about that because people who are not into the turntablism and, and, and might not be from that generation you might not know about the scratch pickles we mentioned earlier. That's DJ Qbert, uh, Apollo, and Mixmaster Mike, who went yeah. on to be the DJ for the Beastie Boys. And now Metallica. Now Metallica, is that right? I didn't know that. Uh-huh. So that's San Francisco DJs. So that, I mean, and that was some big shit back Yo, then. Yo, man, the DJ scene here, bro was so savage. Like, if you weren't from the Bay, bro, you was getting lit. There was an innovation thing between Disc, Qbert, Eddie Def, Quest, Mixmaster Mike, DJ 8-Ball, Rob Ski. <sighs> like, I know I'm leaving people out. Mike Realm, D-Styles, Shortcut, like, around these dudes from the beginning. And, you know, they were savage, you know what I'm saying? But, like, I would go to, like, Q's house when he was still in the Excelsior because he lived across the street, directly across the street from uh, from Disc, you know, who was my DJ in the beginning. And, I mean, watching all of that creativity unfold was out of control. For a while, when I lived in San Bruno, Mixmaster Mike lived down the street from me on Tahama Court. And I would go to his house and watch him practice. And I can't even put that shit into words for you. I saw him, like, when he get on from Beastie Boys, he'll tell you, oh, I used to call MCA and leave a message, scratching and hang up. I saw him do that. (laughs) He did that in front of me. (laughs) 
He calls MCA, and I'll tell you how well I remember it. He was scratching a beat from Welcome to the Terror Dome, but the actual turntable was off. And he was scratching, like yeah. he was using just his the force of his hand yeah. to make the beat. So he's like, hey, what's up, man? It's Mike. Put it down. And he's like, boom, boom, cat, boom, cat, boom, boom, cat, boom, and he hung up. Why do I remember that? Because it was fucking crazy. But the other thing I remember is right after this, oh, you know what? I wanted you to hear something. I'm like, what you got? Bro, only a few of you. Do you remember the original version of Snoop's 187 on Undercover Cop? No. Niggas that I used to know when so dope with. Listen to how a real nigga flow shit. He played that shit for me. I was sitting on the couch like, my lord. And like, that's the type of shit I used to do and just be around them dudes, right? And watch their creativity. Watch how they were open to jazz, to rock. They were exposing me to all kinds of music. I was going to the battles. I used to host a lot of the International Turntable Federation battles at, at Maritime Hall and stuff like that. And it was just a crazy, beautiful time. Like, I was there for that. Um, I saw a lot of the early shows. I saw, like, when KRS-One first used to tour at colleges and speak at Stanford and UC Berkeley and SF State and all of that. You know what I mean? And that's when Boss Juan, I think that's when I met Boss Juan at um, SF State. Uh, after a KRS-One lecture and, you know, to see the intellectual side of hip hop emerge. I was there for that. Yeah, you know the what I'm education, saying? academic. Yeah, I mean, that was, that, was, that was crazy, bro. That was crazy. And so, you know, um, you know, a lot of the early B-boy scene, the Knuckleneck Tribe and all that stuff, you know, like I was around to observe that. Um, so I was, I was blessed. I mean, I was around pretty much and participated in some level in almost every element of hip hop. I just can't dance, yeah. yo. I yeah, yeah. fucking have no rhythm. It's tragic. <laughs> That's the one uh, element I can't. I can DJ a little bit. I'm sick with the graffiti. I'm sick with the rapping. I'm, I might just start start b-boying just to fuck cast up. Yeah, Start yeah. doing some head spins in my show and shit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I uh, could strut. I could hit do a little Yeah, I could do a little top song. rock. I could do yeah, a little top rock That's all shit. we got. You got insurance, bro? Yeah. Make sure we <laughs> yeah, got... We got health insurance. We got... For the hips <laughs> and the ribs popping. podcast like this. Oh! Oh! You know what I'm saying? Um, at some point, you transitioned into uh, more behind the scenes in the industry in terms of like branding and marketing, correct? Yeah, yeah. So like when Hyphy Juice came out, I was like the main dude behind Hyphy Juice in terms of the promo. And who were you working with? Going to this do dude named Kobe. Kobe used to work with... Uh, I mean, first of all, too, let me just say, if you don't remember Hyphy Juice, you probably ain't really Hyphy. Yo, so, first of all, that's still for, one for of the- you internet Hyphy babies. One of the best saying. drinks ever made. This was delicious. Oh my, Grapple, and Grape, it, yeah, and, and it, Apple. And it got you activated. What? And we used to mix it with, with the Incredible Hulks. Yeah. You know, all types of cocktail bro. combinations with the Hyphy juices. So I was doing PR for Tracks a Million, rest in peace. That's my dog. I knew Trax since he was in high school, but like when he passed away, that was crushing. Yes. Rest in peace, Tracks a Million. Blood. And so he told, um, uh, why is my brain breaking, bro? Who's everybody in the team? Name everybody in the team. Clyde Carson. Carson. Kaz, so Kaiser, he told, he told, he told Clyde, this is my guy. Clyde told Kobe, who's like somehow one of the main dudes behind the team, and they were getting ready to drop the Hyphy Juice stuff. So I started doing PR for that. So I was like, I was getting it like at some point, somehow I finagled my way into a taste test of energy drinks. And like hyphy juice beat out like Jolt and like whatever Coke was doing. It was big. And that was in like the SF gate or whatever. 
And, um, you know, I was doing doing PR for for tracks at that time and stuff like that. It was just crazy, man. So, yeah, for a long time I was doing PR. I started doing PR. The first PR I did was for, on the hip-hop side of things, was for DJ Qbert when they were at Sundance when the Wave Twisters film came out. So it was like me and this woman named Stacy Chilaucheep. So it was me, her, and like, um, we did a lot of that PR for that. And so I did a lot of PR and I did a lot of background writing stuff, you know, content writing. One time, mm, Chuck had this thing called Hip Hop Hall of Fame. It was the DVD. And so I wrote all the script for that. It's like when you see him, yeah, and then you talk about Karis One or Big Daddy Kane. Like that was me writing all that stuff. What, what would your advice be for um, an artist looking into to PR stuff or an actual PR person? What's uh, some good jewels, tricks of the trade? I'm going to give you the easiest trick of the trade. Do your own research and find the managing editors of anywhere you want to be. First, you got to know where you want to be. Where do you want to be? You want to be on this website, this magazine, this news channel, whatever. Find the managing editors. Create your own list. Create your own list. And then sit your ass down and hit them all. Hit them all. Right? Reach out. Be friendly. See what's up. Know why you want, like, why should we put your band, your song, your crew in this thing? You should, you need to know that. Hey, I saw you did a story on, you know, Kendrick and, you know, a lot of our production is in that theme. Or, hey, I know you did something on women in hip hop and he, she's amazing lyrically or whatever. Like, you have to know what is your in, what separates you, right? Um, you should read about what they call positioning and differentiation, right? Yes, you're an artist, but what is it about your music that's different than everybody else? You need to be able to like say that in a sentence, right? Um, and so it's 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 not that hard, but nobody wants to do the hard work. I say a lot of things are simple, but not easy. Yeah, for sure. You know what I mean? And but, so uh, y'all heard it right yeah. here. That's, that's nah, pretty I'm, simple. No, I'm telling you, man, just go just go to all the sites you want to be on. Managing editor, bam. Managing editor, bam. Managing editor, bam. Spend like five hours doing that. Yeah. Then know what exactly am I sending them? Are you sending them one song? Are you sending a song in a video? Are you sending them a video only? Whatever. And then how are you going to introduce this to them? What is going to make them stand out? What is going to make you stand out from the other emails that come in? It's not that hard, but it it, it should be done. You know what I mean? Is that a game that you're still in these days? or? Yeah, yeah, quietly. Yeah. Okay, quietly. Keep it quiet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I want to throw out a couple other Bay Area figures yeah. that I know you may have a relationship. Well, I do know you have relationships okay. with them or you have had. Yeah. Uh, this one was kind of interesting. I found out about uh, while uh, perusing... Your uh, podcast, The Bishop Chronicles, out now where uh, everywhere else po podcasts are available. Get on. But uh, I just saw an episode where you were telling some interesting stories about DJ Vlad. And I was curious if you'd uh, care to break <sighs> wow, down your... Wow, my man really went into the... <laughs> I was okay. curious to break down some of your history because some of the stories I heard you telling were, were kind of interesting. Hilarious. So and I, I know just to say, I have respect for Vlad as uh, for how he's built his platform yeah. and, and his DJing back in the yeah. day. Yeah, So Vlad's an interesting cat. Um, you know, we only really fell out once, but we've always pretty much been cool. You know what I'm saying? I think Vlad is... Um, I think the reason Vlad wins is because he's underestimated. People don't know how smart he is, bro. He's really smart. And different people have different kinds of intelligence. And Vlad's intelligence is 
the ability to look at a thing and know if it's actually going to blow or not. Like long before it blows, he can look at a thing and be like, two years from now, right? So he sets up all the infrastructure while everybody else is asleep. Yeah. And then when it hits, he's like, and here's, right? And then here's video on it. And you're like, damn. So that's his skill. I think that, um, you know, Vlad also gets a lot of bashing. He got a lot of bashing in the beginning because he was the first one. He was one of the first Bay Area DJs to use MP3s. And people shit on him so hard. Like, I remember being in record stores and seeing DJs who use turntables. Be like, you fucking suck, Vlad. You're not even a fucking real DJ because you're using fucking MP3s. And I was just like, technology? What the fuck? <laughs> and so, like, like, so many of those same DJs now don't even have wax in their house. Yeah. Right? But they'll never... Reach out to Vlad and be like, blood, I was tripping, blood. I remember when I saw you at Leopold's, man. It was a bad move on my part. I no one will do that. But he was a straight pioneer on that, right? When Tupac died, he was obsessed with Tupac in what I believe is a positive way. And so he acquired all of these acapellas from Tupac that people didn't know. And then he put like Dre beats under him and you know, he hooked up with Dirty Harry and he hooked up with a Green Lantern and put out that Tupac mixtape. I don't care what you think about Vlad. That fucking mixtape was out of control, bitch. And it's still raw as fuck right now. He was killing it. Shut the fuck up. That shit was hard. So it's easy for people to be like, he's not even a real DJ. Yo ass ain't a real DJ, blood. <laughs> Show me something that you, that's fucking with that, that mixtape on fucking pop. Show me something when he did that big mix. Yeah fuck out of here, bro. But like, he puts out a lot of problematic content, right? He puts out things that I question. Um, but we all have a different moral compass. It's not hard for him to do that. Like, in his head and heart. He, it don't bother him. It will bother me. It don't bother him, right? Um, plus, it's profitable for him. So, even if you could make a moral argument against it, He's living in Calabasas, not tripping. I'm not sure he would go in a different direction at this point, even if he knew it was wrong, which I don't think he thinks it is, right? Um, and that's why, you know, like when people were talking about boycotting DJ Vlad, I did my show on Vlad. But what was interesting is people don't pay attention that in that episode, I never say, I'm Bishop Chronicles, available on Spotify and iTunes, at Bishop Chronicles on IG. It's your boy. Uh, when I did that, I... I never said that I supported or didn't support the boycott. But the thing was, I didn't support the boycott because let's say we boycott Vlad and he's, oh, I'm shutting it down. I'm going to just like, you know, wipe my tears away in Calabasas, right? Um, somebody else will show up. No jumper, you know what I'm saying? All these other dudes. There's always somebody else who's going to do it, right? And the other thing is, Vlad paid a lot of dues. He put in work when nobody cared. A lot of the popularity around the hyphy movement was because he thought it was going to blow. And he was right. Ghost ride the whip, right? A lot of his, you know, like when he saw artists at the beginning who ended up blowing, he, he thought they were going to be big. And so he interviewed them. And so while we can fault from a philosophical perspective some of the stuff that he's done, um, ultimately... I don't think he's a bad person at heart from the time that I spent with him. And I don't think that he intends bad. I just think he um, 
wants to see what's possible. Mm. You know what I'm saying? But he's from Millbrae. I'm from San Bruno. We're damn near neighbors. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but I met him through Cool Kyle. So Cool Kyle or El Cool Kyle, as you know him in the Cumbia DJ circuits around here, um, he introduced me to Vlad. And, um, you know, shout out to Kyle, man. He's raw, bro. Like, you know, there's a lot of dope people in hip hop out here. That's all I'm going to say. That's what's up. Um, well said. Uh, interesting to hear your your take on that. <clears throat> what else you got? Uh, throw out another group. Um, and, you know, I believe we were just talking about this offline. The first time we met is mm. with when you were with Zumbi at Rock the School Bells in my workshop. I mm-hmm. know you go way back with, with the Zion Eye crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's your history with, with them and with, with Zumbi? What's crazy is, like, I, I had known him for so long before he passed that I don't really remember when we kicked it. Like, sometimes you have friendships, like with Boss Juan. Like, I don't really remember when I met Boss. All of a sudden, he was just in my life, and we were homies on site, and that was I it. I remember when I met Boss Juan. He was, <laughs> was on the bar train. We were stuck in the, in the tunnel going across the bridge. But, like, with Zumbi, it was very similar. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure it happened after Mind Over Matter came out. We both had an affinity and a love for martial arts, you know, and esoteric spirituality. So we were always sharing ideas and whatever, you know what I'm saying? And then um, what was really crazy um, is that is that after being married for a really long time, uh, I almost died. And then after I almost died, uh, uh, my wife at the time left me. And he just happened to call like right after she left with my kids. And he was like, what's up, bro? And I was like, bro, my whole shit just collapsed, dog. She fucking bounced, bro. And I started crying and he was like, my lady left me too. And so we became like soldiers for each other, you know, trying to re-figure our fucking selves out. It was a crazy time, bro. We were both... Like, fucking fragile. But we held each other up. We got right. I went overseas. I came back. COVID's on. Everybody's arguing about the vaccine. I land, and I'm quarantining at this warehouse, Thomas Martial Arts in Hayward. Take your kids. And next to Thomas Martial Arts in the warehouse is a recording studio. I come across Nump. Shout out to Nump. Shout out my boy Nump. So Nump's like, somebody said over here, did jujitsu. We talking about martial arts. He go, oh, you know, we should talk later. He goes back to the studio. I fall asleep. Earlier that day, I'd went and got my first vaccine. Uh, it was, was the one that they stopped making, Johnson & Johnson. So I got my shot. Uncle Dame comes by to drop off some stuff for me because he knew I was back. Shout out to Uncle Dame, us for us. And then I fall asleep and then somebody's banging, banging on, banging on the door. And I'm like, anyone banging on the door of a martial arts school must know it's fixing to be on after I open this thing, bro. So I open the door and it's Zumbi with Numb. He's like, blood, I'm trying to tell you my man right here, bro. You know how Numb is. <laughs> so we hook up. I'm like, blood, I haven't seen you in how long. He's like, what's up? He comes in, me and him sat in a room for like three hours, just catching up, catching up. He's got a new love in his life. I got a new love in my life. Things are good. We're like, yo, everything's gravy. And he was dead two weeks later. Mm. 
I was fucking shattered, bro. The last, one of the last things he said to me, he's like, I want to train jujitsu with you and I want you to teach my sons. Mm. I'm like, cool. I give him my number. Everything's good. I guess he tried my number or something or maybe he put it in wrong. So he sent me a message like, yo, I want my, my sons to train with you. Um, can you reconfirm your number or whatever? And I sent it. And then after that, he was dead. Rest in peace. You know what I'm saying? Like Zion I forever blood. And everybody who's involved with that should get fucked up legally and otherwise. And I said it and I meant it. Yeah, that was a big loss. Um, That's that's someone that's been around pretty much ever since I started rapping. I've been running into Zumbi, Zion I, Deuce Eclipse. Bro. Rest in peace to the brother, man. We miss you down here, man. Um. I think that would be a good space to pivot also to um, into talking about the Hip Hop Chess Federation mm. and what and then also uh, I'm, I just threw together a chess club, man. If y'all want to come through, Chestnut Checkers, February fifth at the Stacks in Hayward. Just come through, listen to some vinyl, play some chess. I believe you're gonna pull up, bro. I will be okay, there, bro. Okay. Yeah, I will be, be cool, there, man. bro. Four to seven p.m. February fifth, Hayward. Just play some chess and chill, man. It's gonna be cool. Yeah, yeah. What 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 got you started in the... What made you start the Hip Hop Chess Federation? So, yeah. So, um, Hip Hop Chess Federation was an idea uh, I technically had around 1990. And what it really was was that because I was interviewing all these rappers and I was a maniacal journalist, like I dig to the fucking marrow of anything that had to do with hip hop, I started noticing a pattern where rappers were mentioning chess. The first lyrics that I find are from EPMD and Public Enemy. They may be older. But those are the first that I recall. And then when I would interview rappers for the source or rap pages or whoever, after the interview, when the tape recorder was off, I'd be like, hey, bro, do you play chess? And they'd be like, yeah. I was like, noted. You play chess? Yeah. Noted. You? Yeah. 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 And all of a sudden, I'm like, Fucking everybody plays the game, bro. What are we doing? And then um, what happened was, uh, like I said, I really rock with people in every element, um, but I didn't always do every element. I was never like a bomber, but I was a tagger. I tagged the name Schoolboy. Um, And so a very gifted artist by the name of Blast One, who still doesn't get enough fucking props, bitch. Last one, Leo Liberon. Me and him are on the phone. And I was covering something that dealt with chess. I don't really remember. And me and me and me and Leo are on and and it was like, yo, we should do some hip hop chess shit. And I was like, Hip Hop Chess Federation, bro, we need to do this shit. He's like, yeah. So I actually, true story, I knew Josh Waitskin. The chess movie Searching for Bobby Fischer is about Josh Waitzkin as a child. When he grows up, he, he starts studying kung fu and then jujitsu. He hits me up. I hit him up. We start vibing. And he plugs me to a connect he had at Ubisoft, which did the Chess Master video game. I hit Chess Master. And I'm like, yo, I want to do this thing where we bring out Wu-Tang and we do this thing, blah, 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 blah. And he's like, okay, I'm going to let you pitch this to my boss. I'm like, oh shit. So now I'm pitching to one of the heads at Ubisoft, right? Oh, G Chess Master. I remember right? that. So I put me and Leo uh put together this whole presentation. 
But then he had to work. So like that day I had to go pitch that shit on my own. So I walk in, I'm all suited and shit. And I'm like, as you can see, chest here, here, and here. And the rap goes there. The DJ is there. Wu-Tang. And he was like, how much you need for that? I was like, we would like $85,000. And he was like, done. <laughs> and I was like, I should have said 185000 But we'll take it. So we do this event. You know, me, Jizza, Rizza, uh, 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 Amir Suleiman, Paris, Sunspot Jones, Halleck Gracie, Rocker from Dilated. Who else was on the boards? Who else was on the boards? Come on, man. Cuba wasn't at that one. Like, it was fucking crazy, bro. Okay? We did that shit at the Galleria. People didn't know. I knew Jizza before Wu-Tang because of journalism. The genius. Yes. When he was running, doing press runs for that album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. we were tight, bro. And so, uh, he's coming to town, Yoshi's, in a few weeks. You should be there. Um, peace to the God, by the way. And so, we start doing these events, and it really just took the world over by storm, bro. So, like, in one year, I had done what I thought we were going to do in five. I was like, in five years, I can get Rizza here. Peace, God. Y'all doing a thing? Can I? Yeah, come through. And it's just popping. And so me and Riz have been cool ever since. We did amazing stuff there. We did, uh, well, I curated an exhibit around hip-hop and chess at the World Chess Hall of Fame in 2014. Um, the, the exhibit in the World Chess Hall of Fame, the first day, had more people attend the first day event than came to Bobby Fischer's exhibit. Hip-hop beat Bobby Fischer. At the World Chess Hall To be of fair, fame. a lot of people don't like Bobby Fischer, though, now. That's okay. He's <laughs> still just, one of the greatest. Like, I, like, and I, I, and I, I feel you. And I will, not defend, I will not defend his character but, uh, in any know, way. They, I will they never tried, defend his character. They definitely tried to, to assassinate his character towards that. And he, 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 helped, he helped him out with that a little bit. He too. did. He, he did. He was, was wilding. Yeah, he was tripping at the end. No question. But what I'm saying is that... But I'm, I'm just fucking yeah, 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 no, no, no. That's still amazing. So, so, so that exhibit, if you put in World Chess Hall of Fame and hip-hop, you'll see an amazing exhibit... Killed it there. And then a few years later, we did a thing at the Oakland Museum called Respect. Um, called Respect. I don't even remember what the thing was called. I was a guest curator. That's a horrible historian, isn't it? That's so, the Oakland Museum of California? Yeah, Oakland yeah. Museum of California. It was called Hip Hop, Respect, Hip Hop, and something. I don't remember. Anyway, crushed it with that. Um and so, you know, the, the the trajectory of the Hip Hop Chess Federation, like, was huge. We did all these things, like, in the juvenile halls here in Oakland, uh, here in San Francisco, at 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 the at the juvenile hall in, in St. Louis, man. Like, I mean, really amazing things, man. You know what I'm saying? And RZA came out. He gave his soul to those kids. I got a thing. If you go online and you put, look up Bishop Chronicles, put in RZA. Juvenile Hall, you'll probably find I got audio of him speaking to incarcerated boys and girls about chess and life. And he tells stories there that I've never seen, even even in the Wu-Tang Saga stuff, man. Like, it's hard to explain that. You know what I'm saying? But then I shut Hip Hop Chess Federation down in 2019, shield for a year to reflect. And I've created a new organization called 64 Blocks, which fuses jujitsu, meditation and chess. And so uh, on IG, it's just at real, the number six, four blocks, 
man, we're fixing to roll out some devastating stuff. And I hope to have you involved. Yeah, in that I was just going to say, I'm excited for that. We talked a little bit about that before we met up today. And yeah. it's, it's really dope. And you recently just did an event in Staten Island with RZA and the Shaolin Monk. Yeah, so what it was is in 2019, right before, this is so crazy. So I'm in the UK, I'm chilling, I get a call that I don't recognize on the WhatsApp, and I'm like, hmm, seems shady. So I pick it up, though, you never know, right? Every once in a while, you got to pick up that call you're not as sure of, you know what I'm saying? And this lady's like, hey, uh, I work with Tazo T. Uh, RZA gave me your number, and he wanted to know how much you would charge to teach chess in Staten Island. And I was like, if you get the flight, I'll go. I don't need it. You know what I'm saying? Just put your boy up and get the flight. I'm not, I can't, you know what I'm saying? And like, nah, we got to give you something. Like, nah, RZA is my dog. Like, I don't care. I'm going. So what I didn't realize was that Tazo T had created this thing where they bring creative people out who are feeling like they have roadblocks in their creativity and you're at a camp. So part of the camp would be RZA teaching meditation, Part of the camp would be Shaolin Monk Xi and Ming teaching Kung Fu, and part of it would be me teaching chess. Crazy. That's dope. Like it was, it was beautiful. In fact, that experience gave birth to 64 blocks. Cause I used to meditate, but I got away from it. And then going to Camp Tazo is what it was called. Camp Tazo, look that up online. Camp Tazo. I went to Camp Tazo and Riz's whole breakdown, the way that everything was, I was like, yo. And then that like that's why I had to chill after I shut down HHCF and I realized, yo, it's for me, for me, it's about jujitsu, meditation and chess. And I was like, word, that's that's the trifecta now. And like, man, so 64 blocks, you're going to see things with Jizza coming up. You'll see some other things with Risen, some other dudes coming up, inshallah. And, um, you know, it's always for the enrichment of, of, of humanity. It's never, you know what I'm saying, like on some ego stuff, bro. We, we find unique ways to help people. I'm really excited to see where that goes. Sounds like a new chapter. And um, I think we've been going for a minute, but um, before I let you go, yeah, you got to tell us about the time that KRS-One tried to fight you. I mean, that's literally the name of your podcast episode. Yeah. It's it's out there. Yeah. And he did try to fight me, though. And he did try to fight you. I would fight KRS-One if I had to fight KRS-One. I wouldn't give a fuck about him being KRS-One respectfully. At that point, I'm like, I don't give a fuck who you are. If you try to fight me, man, it's on. First but, of all, but- <laughs> I was not tripping. And anyone who was in the building knows. And it's on film. The Harvard Archive has that footage. Nobody was tripping from what the West. What happened, man? Nobody what the, what was the tripping, fuck, bro? bro? What happened? Nobody, bro. <laughs> it was a weird story. So, it's important to note that, like, I knew Chris since I was 19. Like I said, bro. Yeah. I've been to so many KRS-One shows, lectures, private moments. I love moments. fucking KRS-One. I ain't bro, gonna lie, man. Like, I love BDP. Despite the fact that we almost... Came to real blows, dog. Like, what he did for hip hop, what he's done for hip hop intellectuals, what he's done for philosophy, the discussion of philosophy and theology in hip hop. Like, it, I don't even think it can ever be replicated, right? And so that's why it was gonna have to hurt my heart to destroy his body. You know what I mean? Nobody was tripping, bro. But what happened was unfortunate. 
And it was due to, I think, a mutual immaturity, a mutual immaturity. I respect the accountability. So he was doing the Temple of Hip Hop thing. We hadn't spoken for some years. He was like, yo, I want you to be down with the Temple of Hip Hop. He 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 really liked the idea because like the whole time I've written, I've written under the pen name the Bishop of Hip Hop. So he had he was like, because he had this temple thing, the idea that the bishop would be in the temple of hip hop, this would be cool. But I was like, dog, I'm Muslim, bro. Like, you know this, bro. You know. Like, I respect everybody's right to believe or not believe anything, but you know I'm Muslim, dog. But every couple months, yo, come through, come through, come down to LA, man. Let me just show you what we're doing, whatever. And then um, I was always like not feeling it. And I don't mean whatever his philosophies were. I just mean I knew who I was. So then one day he calls and I got a witness for this. Me and Scape One, one of the best graffiti heads to ever come out of San Jose, the guy that made the bomb logo. He's like, yo, I need somebody to illustrate what I'm creating to be hip hop's Bible. That's what he tells me. I'm like, I can talk to Scape. He's like, bring Scape over. So we go to the hotel. We chill in this hotel, Karis One, trying to break it down. Scape for the record is probably agnostic, but by virtue of being a Puerto Rican from New Jersey is probably leaning, you know, slight Catholicism, right? So he like, yo, so like, so Scape's like, so tell me what, what do you want in it? And he's like, well, like, imagine I'm slaying a dragon named Indus and Indus represents the industry. Like, I need you to draw this whole thing. And so, we're listening to his ideas and shit. And then he's like, are you down? And he was like, yeah, let's talk about it. Of course, he brought no money up into the whole thing. But we walk out and we walk out of the hotel. And we're walking. And neither of us are talking. And we're walking. First block, no one's spoken. Second block, no one's... <laughs> Third block. And then one of us is like... <laughs> and we just fall the fuck out like, what? This nigga said Indus, what? What is he talking about? So then like, I'm just like, okay, well just, again, I read philosophy and theology. I take it seriously. I've lectured on this stuff at different universities. Seriously. Islamic history. Seriously. Stoic philosophy. Seriously. I said, blood, like, regardless of how I feel, I don't believe that what he's talking about is a revealed text. This may not mean anything to someone that doesn't like study theology, but basically what it means is like, if if you are a believer of Islam, you believe that an angel spoke to the prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, and gave him what we know as the Quran. You understand? Like, uh, 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 you know, things were told to Moses. You know what I'm saying? This is what's in Ju Judaic theology. You know what I'm saying? Like, what Karis one was saying in that hotel room was not revealed speech. He's like, you know, kind of, it came off as though he was making it up as he was going along. And as someone who was a believing Muslim, I was having a very hard time. Like, that don't sound right. So he was trying to make the Temple of Hip Hop an actual religion? That's what it came off like to me. I don't know. Okay. I can't, you know what I'm saying? That's what that. it felt like. The cult of KRS-One. Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's just like, right? So I was like, 
Yeah, blood him out. That was my vibe, right? So then he comes to do a thing at San Jose State and he has a copy of the gospel of hip hop. I do the opening talk at San Jose State. Then he gets up and he goes to speak. I see the shit sitting there. I'm like, fuck. (laughs) Okay. So a few weeks after that, I thought about what I saw. And there was nothing really wrong with what I saw in there. But the problem that I had was this. You know, we can have different arguments about like comedic science, 42 negative confessions and 10 commandments. And you know what I'm saying? Like Akhenaten, like maybe being a monotheist before Moses. You know, I I can have these conversations. But what I'm saying is there was nothing that I saw in the sections that I read that made me believe that it was an original text. And what I mean is like when you look at a lot of what Socrates said or Patahotep said, I know my comedic science, boy, you ain't even read that book. What I'm saying is that There's an original stamp on certain things, right? Certain things. And I didn't see the original stamp. I felt that there were certain things that he was calling hip hop philosophy, but that's really uh, uh, something that comes from the Stoics. Or he's saying that it's hip hop philosophy, but it comes from the Bhagavad Gita or it comes from Islam. And I wasn't seeing, well, where is the originality in here? I'm not seeing it. Not saying it doesn't exist. I hadn't seen it. So I wrote, And I called him a few times to have that conversation because I was like, if he can show me where the differentiation is at, I'll come down. We can have a conversation just as someone who believes in freedom of religion. He didn't hit me up. So. Then I wrote this thing called. The weakness of being hip hop. And what my argument was was that you can never be hip-hop because hip-hop is a vehicle that takes you to a place. It's like a car. We get in the car and we can go to Africa. We can go to ancient Aztec. We can go, right, wherever you want, to Jamaica, right? But you can't worship the vehicle because the vehicle is just taking you where you want to go. You put Black history in it. You put Latino history in it. You put martial arts in it, right? You put Taoism in it. It'll be that vehicle, but you can't fall. You can't worship the vehicle. Hip hop is just a vehicle and it's an empty vessel and you make it a thing. So I put this out. All hip hop runs it. Shout out to Chuck. And the internet goes bonkers. Like, who is this fool challenging KRS? And I'm like, yo, my goal was never to fight Chris or even disrespect Chris. My goal is that I had read books on the Moorish era, many of them, and they talked about how Muslims, Christians, and Jews used to debate different theology things in Moorish Spain. And they weren't fighting each other. They were trying to figure out what was real. So I was like, Chris, let's debate this idea about being hip hop. And I don't believe that what you have is a revealed text. Show me. That was it. I intended no disrespect. And I was trying to elevate the discussions of hip hop at the time. He completely ignored me for a few days. Then he writes this response that had a lot of personal attacks in it, but not a lot of addressing of my points. And it was received that way by a lot of people. They was like, damn, 
this nerd nigga out the bay might have actually served Chris on paper. I don't, I don't know. And so <clears throat> he writes the second thing, I think. I think there was a second thing he wrote. And it was like, oh, this nigga's hating Deese. You must have got this fool. I don't even care. I'm just trying to shake out the truth. Genuinely. But what happened is like two years pass. And when he goes to different cities, let's say he does a talk and somebody be like, I got a question. Yeah. Are you going to debate Adisa? And he would whatever. And so I think he thought I was having that done. Right. Like, I think he thought I was trying to have him badgered while he's traveling. And I'm just dude doing my thing. You hear me? I'm just doing my thing. I've like literally forgot about most of it because he hasn't responded. Okay, I see you not trying to debate me. We good. Meanwhile, there's some other people around him that thought they were going to try to see me and they were failing miserably. But I'm going to let that stay aside. So eventually, the Stanford event comes up and I had asked Marcelina Morgan if I could debate him there because I knew we were both going to be there. She was like, the hip hop, the Harvard Hip Hop Archive had for a time moved to Stanford and they had some things and they were going to do this thing. Chris was going to be there and I was going to be there for totally different purposes, but it was clear we were both going to be in the building. So I was like, yo, can I debate Chris? And she was like, no. And I was like, cool, I'm good. You feel me? I'm not trying to force no drama. That's me. The day of the event, we chilling. There's a breakfast. It's me, Sheena Lester, one of the black queens of hip hop journalism. There'll never be another like Sheena Lester. Davey D is at this table. Some other people. We eating, waiting to get ready. And Dave is a classical jokester. And he's like, yeah, blood, I saw KRS up in here, man. You know what I'm saying? Might be on. You know what I'm saying? Like trying to goad me. And I looked at him like I was chilling the hardest. And I was like, I will break KRS-One's arm at this event if he approaches me. You know what I'm talking about? And the whole room was like, right? Now, pause the tape. At the time, I'm prepping for a tournament. I'm so fit. I'm so fit. All I do is pray for war. I pray for war. I'm not tripping, bro. I'm not tripping. But I also didn't come to fight at Stanford. You understand? So we get there, me and Chris, it's like, it's a big table. Like if there were like four of these, right? A big square, okay? And Chris is kind of catty corner to the opposite of me in the room. I do my presentation. Everybody's doing the thing. There is no problem in the room, none. And then Mark Anthony Neal is supposed to have a, 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 a conversation with KRS-One. And I'm chilling. I'm watching like everybody else watching. I'm sitting next to uh, Dr. James Peterson. Yeah. And so, Chris, can you tell me about the South Bronx and whatever the fuck? Because this is hip hop. I can, but I've got a thing to say. We have an FBI agent. We got agents in the room. Agents in the room? What the? What are you talking about? Hip-hop is under attack by this man, Adisa the Bishop. I was like, what the fuck, bro? <laughs> now, let me tell you what Kilu Nyasha, one of the first Black Panther women, ever told me about agents and accusations. 
She said, anytime you find a man in a room accusing another man of being an agent, the accuser is the agent. So I already know better than to talk like that. Because I rock with real revolutionaries, you understand? Geronimo Pratt, Tupac's godfather gave me my middle name. She gave me my name. I don't violate codes like that. So I'm watching him. And I'm like, oh, he's fucking tripping, dog. If you could see the footage, bro. I little put the little mic down, bro. I start taking my shit off, blood. I'm like, what's up, Chris? You know, and he's like, oh, he said some shit to me. And he was like, what I want to do is hop over this table and beat your motherfucking ass. And I'm like, well, player. Now, what people didn't know, speaking of Bay Area rap, is you familiar with the group Mac and AK? Mm-hmm. Okay. East Palo Alto. Right. So Mac, been my homie. Rest in peace. He called me. He said, man, I saw KRS-One coming to Stanford. Now, if you don't know anything about the Bay, Stanford is about half a breath away from the death cauldron of East Palo Alto, my guy. He said, let me tell you something, bro. If KRS-One pulls up, I want you to hit my line and I'm going to show up. He goes, but don't call me if it's not really on because my boys are not coming to have a philosophical discussion. And I was like, cool. I also had about, there was a number of jujitsu dudes scattered in that room is all I'm going to say. So he's talking about whipping my ass. I start like taking my shit off and, and Peterson's like, sit down. He's like, sit, sit down. So I was like, cause I stood up. I was like, what's up? And then I was like, all right. So I sat down. So he starts trying to call me an agent and, and there's a lot of chaos. Like Marcelina Morgan is, is, is rightfully shaken. Right. Cause she's like, if these dudes start fighting, this shit's fucked. And I, you yeah, know what I'm saying? Like Stanford <laughs> with the Harvard you know what fucking saying? people there. Yeah, shit. blood. So like, That's I'm like, I'm like, mm, I'm like, I'm like, you got to chill. Then Busy B starts coming up and Busy B's been kicking it with Chris. So I'm like, oh, he going to try to steal on me for Chris because he's over here. Chris is far. Now I see there's distance. And for a minute, I was like, dog, if you really want to just duck under this thing, run across. Because this is an open space. It's a big square, bro. I'm like, I'm going to duck under this thing, hit the booyaka over the thing, bah, and just let it be on. You got your G's over there. It's, it can be fine, right? If that gets out of hand, beep, boop, call Mac, and it can be even harder than that. But then I thought about my job as a human being and as a Muslim. And I said, you know, you're right. You could duck under this table, come over the top, bust his ass on the grill and break his fucking arm. You're fully capable. But the reality is that you could never unbreak KRS-One's arm. Like once you attack a man like that, it's on forever. And it's not a problem. Like, I got people, and I'm my own man. I don't need people. If I want to come after you, blood, I'll just fucking come after you, bro. But that's, you know, because I'm a warrior. I'm not a thug. And that's the thing. And the thing, I was like, oh, he's like, you know, I said, oh, he goes, you ain't a gangster. You ain't a thug. I'm like, I got to be a thug, Chris. Today you do. Today you do. (laughs) I was like, whatever, blood. You know what I'm saying? Like, you obviously don't even know you're in my backyard. I got partners down the street with gats waiting. Right. But this is what the ego will do to you when you think you can come to the West Coast because you pushed fucking care. Uh, who was the fat dude from fucking PM Don? Rest in peace to the fat dude. Um, 
Yeah. Nigga, I'm not him, yeah, dog. I, I got you. I'm not him. So I'm like, bro, don't fuck him up because the chaos after that, that's the type of shit that got Tupac killed. Like when you don't know how to scale back. So I was like, I'm going to chill. I told Peterson, I'm chilling. After the thing, there's all kinds of little chaos. She kind of, Marcelina kind of shuts the thing down for a little bit. Like everybody go outside for a bit, blah, it was chaotic. And then I left and people was like, oh, you know, KRS was about to whip that journalist's ass, starts popping up on the internet. And other people like, that journalist is hella good at jujitsu. Chris was about to get his ass whooped. And a bunch of little debates start popping. But like by that time, shit's fucked. You know what I'm saying? And I'm not happy just where things are at. So I chill. And then Shamako Noble calls me from Hip Hop Congress. And I'm like, what's up, blood? And he's like, KRS-One just called me and he wants to know if there can be peace. Now, I don't know what happened in between this incident and the time KRS-One called me. What I think happened is some people probably told him, that's not the guy you think you want to fuck with. You might want to chill. And he rethought about it. Or maybe he just had a better philosophical epiphany. Might have just been like, damn, that was a bad fucking look. I was wilding out at yeah, Stanford. Yeah, what the fuck was right? I doing? I was trying to fight the dude at the fucking... Co- yeah. God damn it, Chris. Come on, yeah, man. Yeah, like his stock fuck. dropped heavily after this shit. Because that isn't it. That's not a good You look. know, his stock dropped heavily. And so... He said, "Can is it cool? And I was like, I don't think so. I don't know. I got to think. So I'm chilling. Then phone rings. Might have been the same day. I don't remember. It was Davey D. He's like, peace, man. It's Dave. I said, what's up, bro? He's like, I got Bam on the phone. It's Africa Bombada. He's like, yo, we need to chill this out. Can I get you and KRS-One on the phone? And I went off. Man, fuck Chris. I'm going off. But I was an original Zulu from the Bay. In the original seven, shout out to Alex Aquino, Polo Paws, you know what I'm saying? All the original dudes. And uh, I was like, yeah, we can get on the phone. So we get on the phone and shit starts going down. It was probably an ugly, a mutually ugly, immature conversation. One of the things that happened is I had a death threat sent to my house. And I knew that someone in the temple had sent that shit. And I felt that I knew that Chris knew about that letter. And I confronted him about that letter. And he confirmed that he knew about it. And I was like, so you know niggas is sending fucking death threats to my house, bro? That's some cowardly ass, bitch made ass shit, bro. The fuck is going on with you, bro? You know what I'm saying? And he even admitted at that time that when he found out about the death threat, that he was so angry he didn't care. Which, as weak as fuck as it was, I could wreck it. You know what I mean? I could see him being that man. So we, like, squashed it. So Davey D and Shimako Noble and Africa Bambada are really responsible for that not getting as out of hand as it, as it could have been. And Dave and Shimako uh, and even Bam, despite being a molester-ass weirdo, bro, uh, did a good deed that day. Well, shout out to motherfucking Karis One, man. Um, Amazing MC. Yeah. There will never Shit be happens. another like him, bro. Shit you know what I'm saying? That's a pretty um, legendary statement that Karis One tried to fight me. Yeah, it was wild, man. Um, that's but you know what? Now, I mean, bro, history. like, we're all fucking grown. We're, tri- we're grown as fuck then. We're triple grown now. What year was this? 
There it is. Yeah, yeah something like that. Go. You know what I'm saying? And yeah, you know what? I think it was like 07, 08. No, it, it says 06. It does it? Damn, my guy with the internet. Um, yeah, you know, it was tragic, bro. And you know, we it should have never been that bad. You know what I'm saying? It should have never been like that. And it was weird though, because it what what I intended as a way to push hip hop forward and to be more intellectual and philosophical almost devolved into the shit that we don't want to see the most, which is, you know, grown ass men fighting over hip hop. That shit is corny as fuck, but yeah, I don't think anyone, but you know what? It's a bad look, bro. For everybody. Bro. It's just, I mean, it's uh, refreshing to hear you say that because we were talking earlier about questionable content practices yeah. as they relate to hip-hop. And I do want to double down on that. That Yeah, nobody really wants to see that bullshit, man. A lot of people promote that shit. A lot of people push it. I guess it is entertaining. It's something to talk about when two adult-ass men beef over lyrics or some disrespect or ego or whatever. Yeah. But at the end of the day, bro, it's not a good fucking look. You know, and I just want to apologize in this moment to anybody who was connected to that situation because, you know, it was immature, bro. You know what I'm saying? It was immature, bro. It was it was wild. And and I'm glad that it didn't happen. It would it would have been a bad look. Like if I would have if I would have put hands on Chris, or if Chris would have put hands on me, or if his people would have got at me or my people would have got at him, like it wouldn't have gotten it wouldn't any have better. Been, it wouldn't That's have been worth sure. it. Nobody yeah. would have. There would have been no winner in that clash. Yeah, no. Nah, you know what I'm nah, saying? Nah, nah, nah. Well, shit, man. Um, hell of a story. I feel like we could talk for like two more hours. We really could, bro. Um, really I feel could. like we barely scratched the surface. I find that feeling a lot of times doing this podcast yeah. with people, especially with folks like you, who go back to the '80s with hip hop. Um, but thank you for coming through and, and sharing these stories me, you know and we're building and new friendships you know yeah, starting right here new work opportunities uh, uh, building yeah. the chess chess club February 5th 64 yeah. blocks is underway it's going um, down and then also if you've been watching this whole time you're a true history debate fan are. and we're gonna be uh, doing the live podcast with Pilo at Amoeba Music on January 19th so make sure you pull up 5pm January 19th and this is another episode we got so much more coming thank you to the whole team thank yes. you to Amoeba yes. shout out to everybody out there watching and uh, thanks to my guest Adisa Word man Banjoko Word. and we out of here y'all we out peace peace